How's it going, everybody? Got a great episode for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you have not done it yet, hit the subscribe button. If you listen on Apple, Spotify, or Pandora, or Stitcher, or wherever you're listening from, click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support the podcast. It'll give you updates when new episodes drop. And uh, I really do appreciate it. And if you can, leave a review. Um, tell me what you think of the show, who your favorite guests are, if you've got suggestions for guests in the future. I love hearing those too. Um, appreciate it. My guest today is a world-leading expert in stem cell therapy and regenerative medicine. Regenerative. Regenerative. I think that's correct. Um, he is a doctor who's been practicing for over 40 years. He initially started to help patients who were struggling with traditional therapies and then really had some success using hyperbaric treatments for stroke patients. And that led itself into stem cell therapy where he's been treating a whole host of conditions, including stroke, but also a lot of neurodegenerative conditions, things like ALS and Parkinson's and uh, Alzheimer's disease. And uh, he's gotten a lot of shit, a lot of heat from traditional uh, medicine. And uh, he's kind of lived by this motto of progressing forward and looking for new answers and asking why, um, why things occur. And uh, I really appreciated his insight. He was very honest. And uh, yeah, I think you guys are going to dig this. If you're into regenerative medicine, things like uh, stem cell therapy, this is an absolute excellent episode to listen to. And uh, I think you're going to dig it. Give it up for my guest, Dr. David Steenblock. But before we enjoy this episode, a super quick shout out from the sponsor of this podcast, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. Uh, this week is a special week because it's National Coffee Week. And if you are a specialty roast coffee fan or just a coffee drinker in general, go to drinkaction.com, that's action with a K, and grab specialty roast coffee. Because number one, there's going to be some great promotions occurring. It'll save you tons of money. But you won't find better coffee on the market. And I mean that. If you drink just the typical Maxwell House or Folgers or whatever you get at the grocery store, you're going to be blown away. You probably don't even know that that coffee is over-roasted to hide some of the poor quality of the beans and the preservatives. Uh, you probably don't even realize it. Once you drink Action Specialty Roast Coffee, you're going to be like, what the hell? I didn't know that coffee tastes like that. It's uh, quite a shock. They also have specialty natural supplements, things like turmeric and CBD, a great product called Active, which I use. Uh, I've used it with tremendous results for gut problems that I've been having. The turmeric especially is something that I credit for that. I've had a knee injury with a torn meniscus, and it's helped with that from the recovery aspect. Uh, great apparel. Uh, try Rumble Time Specialty Roast. It's a partnership with Anthony Rumble Johnson. We want to show him some love and support. He's been going through some tough things, right? And uh, any extra Rumble Time support, we do appreciate that. But uh, yeah, National Coffee Week. Go to at Drink Action's Instagram page. You'll find all of the special promotions there. And uh, enjoy some coffee while you check out this episode. No worries. No, no problem at all. I'm easy. I, uh, I appreciate the time. First and foremost, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest. <clears throat> I've had so many different types of people on this podcast and I pride myself on finding interesting folks who have really led from the front, uh, around whatever, uh, passion is theirs. And that's been professional athletes. It's been military special forces, it's been neuroscientists and I came across your profile on social media and stem cell therapy more in a um, injury uh, repair it has been something that I've followed somewhat closely to um, and has really interested me. But when I saw all the things that you had been working on, uh, it got me thinking um, about a lot of things. And I thought, man, if there's ever been a person to really bring on and try to tap into that wisdom uh, and maybe answer a few of the questions that I have, it would be you. So uh, let's do it. 
first, I think if you could, um, maybe just a quick background uh, to kind of give the folks a little bit of an understanding of, you know, where this information's coming from. And then uh, we can go right from there if that works for you. Oh, let's see. I'm 78 years old. I started in medicine when I was four. So this, this gives me a, what a, how many, 74 years of being in medicine. I made my first autopsy at the age of four. Can you believe? And so that was a horse on a farm in Iowa where I was born and raised. And uh, so the horse died, vet came over and said, I'm gonna you know, open him up and see what's going on. I said, I wanna be where, there and learn what is going on because I wanna know what's inside of a horse. Why does a horse work like this? And why a tractor works like that? So, cause I knew how a tractor worked already, you know, with the engines, the pistons and all that and gas. And, but I couldn't figure out, you know, it's four. I said, why, how can, they both move, they both function. And so what is the difference here? And so that's what got me going. And it, boy, it was complicated as compared to the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent the last 74 years trying to figure out why, how it works, all this complexity of tissue. What is this stuff, this soft, gooey stuff that we have wrapped around our bones and, and you know, as you're looking at, what is this stuff? How is it made? How does it, how does it come about? How, why is it shaped like it is? What can it, what can it do? What can it not do? That, 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 you know, there's so much to know about just the human body. And so 74 years of studying it now, I didn't to know a little bit. <laughs> anyway, so then I went on, when, you know, college, uh, Iowa State University, uh, master's degree in biochemistry from uh, Des Moines University. And uh, my, my medical degree is a doctor of osteopathy, which is a combination of medical, medical doctor and chiropractor. You get the training of both. And so I had all that. And then I went on, I did, uh, uh, I was a couple of years out in the, in the rainforest in Washington as a solo practitioner, ran a 32 bed hospital. And then I went back to Cleveland and got into pathology training I did three years of anatomical clinical pathology because I wanted to know again more about exactly how it all works by looking at the actual microscopic stuff, what was going on. They didn't like me there because I kept saying, why? Why is it like this? Why is it like that? They said, your job is not to ask why. Your job is to say, it is this. That's it. Don't, you know, it's cancer. It's not cancer. It's not, why is it cancer? How did it get to be cancer? That's not your job. And so I was, I was already sort of not in the team because I was not, I was just trying to figure out why things happen the way they are. So I've always been asking why, 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 why? I drove my teachers crazy, everybody around me crazy. And I still say every day, why, why is this? Why is that? So I'm a, I'm a curious fellow and I get off on it. I, I just love to learn. And every day, all I do is study and study and learn. I learned from you, I'll learn today. I, I've learned already a lot of things today. And so, and then, then I collect, and I'm a collector of books and papers. And I've got one of the largest medical libraries in the world, if not the largest private library, uh, something like over a million articles, 60, 70,000 medical scientific books, uh, 7,000 square foot warehouse full of stuff that I have collected. And it's all on natural healing and how we can fix the body and how we can repair it and et cetera, et cetera, chemistry. And, you know, it's very complicated. Lots and lots and lots of stuff to, to know. And I, and I long ago, you know, people would say, well, do you, have you read it all? Of course, nobody can read it at all and nobody can remember it all. That's why you have to put it in a place and say, okay, well, when I want to look at it, I go look at it and sort through it all. And then I can pull it all together and, and come up with answers. Uh, for people that don't have answers. So, and here I am. You, you know, the, the continuous learning it's uh, and I, and I'm sure there's reasons why, but you know, I think the typical human here on earth goes to a doctor, especially in a developed world and here in America, they spend five minutes with their doctor. Hmm. They don't if get that, a whole, they don't get a whole lot of interaction. And they every, get told that they don't know what they're talking about. And the doctor knows everything. So be quiet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a living example of that. And I've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, but I suffer and still don't have answers to <clears throat> a, a problem where I started having like spots of hair falling out. I lost a tremendous amount of weight, um, had stomach problems and I'm into jujitsu. Um, I thought maybe at one point in time I had some sort of staff or um, some sort of infection 
and I saw a dermatologist and I got the runaround a thousand times. And it wasn't until I started taking a lot of turmeric and uh, probiotics and doing things with my gut, using sauna regularly, um, that I was able to really get any better. But they put me on different antibiotics and not to go down that road, but I, I felt like no one would listen. Um, and I felt that every time I'd ask a question, although they were a doctor, they hadn't really focused on what I was asking. They hadn't, if they did learn about it, it was 20 years in the past and they weren't caught up on the most recent literature. And I got frustrated because a lot of the times I had done the research because I was really interested in what was wrong with me. And I was met with a kind of a condescending attitude, which I understand, right? A lot of time and energy goes into becoming a doctor. So you don't want to be questioned by your patient, but um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it just, it got me thinking this long winded, uh, you know, diatribe that I'm going on here, but it got me thinking, how many other people just go with that? Because I, you know, I, I'm the type of person like you, I'm, I'm like, why? Well, why is this way? I want to understand it. Um, But I don't think a lot of people have that curiosity or the courage to challenge. No more than than 5% of the population, less, less than that. One to two percent, really. Very so, small people. Small was that percent. is that difficult being a doctor? You know, where everybody else is motivated by you know whatever it is to accelerate the process and just get through patients, and where you seem to be outside of the norm, continuously trying to understand and learn better ways to help people. Is that hard? Uh, it's more interesting. Um, I get bored. You know, my my. Most, um, I had a job once, I saw a new patient every five minutes. That's a lot of patients you run through. So you're taking like 40, you know, 30, 30 patients an hour, you know, just this boom, 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 just a mill. Well, that's really boring. All you do is write prescriptions. I mean, what, what's the point of that? Just writing prescriptions, hey. And so uh, when I started practice, I remember sitting at my empty desk and with no patients and saying, how do I want to practice? Uh, because I had a choice because I had all this training and I had done so much already. I'd, you know, I'd done, uh, I'd been an emergency room doctor for many years. I'd been out there in the rural logging town and practicing medicine, doing everything myself. So, so here I am now, I moved back to the big city and I've got competition all over specialists, but so I could try to emulate one of them or what I said, you know what? All I'm going to do is try to specialize in people who have failed all other therapies. Every, every patient that has gone to other doctors and couldn't get better, that's what I want to take care of because it's more interesting. So because they've got all these problems, no other doctor can figure it out. So I say, well, that's interesting. Let me tell me about it. And I get interested in, you know, like your hair. I'm already saying, well, what did that, what did that, you know? And so your problem is uh, that would have been, I would have said, first of all, we got to evaluate your gut and do all these bacterial tests and check all the bugs in your gut and see which ones are there and all that. It sounds like you have some kind of a, a maybe a, a stress reaction to some bug, uh, you know, bacteria actually make amyloid, you know, amyloid that causes Alzheimer's. Did you know the that? Plaques, Bac- the, the plaques that are inside yeah, your brain. In, right? in the brain, bacteria make amyloid in your gut. So that's when those are toxic little aggregates that they can go flying throughout your body and toxins, endotoxins can do the same thing. That's the gram negative bacteria that's in the gut, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are two areas of the body that I call the dark side of the moon. And that's the ileum down here in the right lower quadrant, the ileocecal area, it's dark, wet, and nobody can get access to it unless you do a colonoscopy. And then you have to tell the, 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 your gastroenterologist to go up in there because it's a special thing. He has to shove it through the ileocecal valve and go in there and, and look at it. Usually they don't do that. So it's hard to see what's going on there. And, and so, and it's hypoxic. So it's lacking oxygen as compared to the rest of the body. It's moist, it's wet, and all the food particles that are not digested wind up there. And that's the only area of the body where you have lymphatics connected to the mucosa in a, in a great fashion. So for example, when you have somebody die of congestive heart failure, if you open them up in that area, the ileocecal valve area the, of, of all the whole body and that abdomen, that area is swollen up 
like three times bigger, full of water. The, the walls of the ileocecum are just like like a, like as thick as your finger. Instead of being uh, like a, pen, a piece of paper, it's thick and it's full of water. That's called hydrops. So the fluid builds up in the lymphatics in that ileocecal area. The point of it is, is that that area is, is where your food particles get absorbed through those lymphatics. And if your liver is not working, your liver does not detoxify those antigens and you become allergic. So you see that with like people who get hepatitis. You get somebody, uh, a 10, 12, 15 year old gets hepatitis A and they're perfectly fine beforehand. Within two months, three months, they've got allergies up the yin yang, food allergies. And you say, wow, what's that? It's because these food particles are, that are not absorbed well get absorbed into the system and the liver is not able to detoxify. And the longer those food antigens circulate, the more allergies you develop to, to those foods. So it's, it's, um, it's amazing. So anyway, besides the ileum, the sinuses are the other dark side of the moon because those suckers are dark, black, hidden, and you can't get at them. You know, it's, uh, you ask a doctor, I need to have a sinus uh, culture done. They have no clue even how to do it. They were, they were taught that the only way to do it is to take a drill and drill a hole through your, through your skull bone and into the sinus to get a culture. But who's going to do that? You know, but you can do it if you if you know what you're doing. You can stick a swab way the hell up in there. It's not too comfortable, but you can identify and get a culture out of the sinuses. But most, I would say, 99% of the doctors have no clue about how to do that. So you got two areas that fester and 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 grow bugs that can feed into your system and poison you and poison you and poison you, and you have no clue as to what the hell is going on unless you get a culture of those and take a look at them. What percentage of people's illnesses do you think, because we have this, you know, hey, take a prescription, solve it. And it seems to me that it's more, you're just kind of putting band-aids on bullet wounds all the time, as opposed to treating root cause, you know, is it as bad, like 90% of all problems that people have, whether it be cancers or heart disease are really avoidable if they were to identify these types of issues and treat them specifically early on? Uh, the, the earlier you, you diagnose and treat, the better, of course. Um, I mean, it, it's just, you know, if you have a stroke, I can take, I can take, and I have taken strokes, patients who have had a massive stroke and treated them within hours and brought them back. So instead of being unconscious, they're up walking around in 24 hours. So now, but if I had let that patient sit for 24 hours and not do anything, they would have been permanently paralyzed. Mm -hmm. So the sooner you get a treatment of something that goes wrong, you know, the better. But most people don't think about that. Most people say, well, it'll go away. <laughs> and then when it doesn't, then, then they finally get around to the doctor. But then by that time, it becomes a permanent situation. Damage so, is done. Yeah. So how did you get to stem cells? After all, like all the things that you've done, how, how did you find yourself leveraging stem cell therapy to develop the results that you felt were kind of bleeding edge? I, my patients drove me to it. Um, besides trying to drive me crazy, they tried to get me to do more things. I had uh, uh, in that case, I, I was talking about, here's a case, uh, a patient who uh, had a stroke and was, in the, was being admitted to the intensive care unit at Hogue. And the daughter called me and told me, asked me what to do. I said, bring her over to me, sign her out against medical advice, bring her over to me. She did. And I took that comatose lady and brought her back to pretty much normal within 24 hours. And at that point I said, hey, I'm going to go into stroke because nobody's doing that. Nobody's done that ever. You know, this is, a, as far as I'm concerned, that was a miracle then. It still always will be a miracle. You take a comatose stroke patient and convert him back into somebody who's walking and talking in 24 hours. That's amazing. And so I got into stroke rehabilitation and I did stroke rehabilitation for 10 years. And during that time, I, they, the people would get better. They, I had about a 90% uh, improvement rate in terms of people who had chronic stroke, people who had stroke three years ago, they'd gone through everything, done everything. They were you know, still paralyzed or whatever. They'd come to me and I'd put them through two months of hyperbaric oxygen and physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, but after the, after they got, you know, they, they went through it all, they said, well, I'm a lot better. Uh, I'm out of a wheelchair. I'm walking, but I still have a limp. My arm is still a little weak. Is there anything else? 
So they were always saying, what else can I do? And so I was always, every day, every day I discharged somebody, it was like, what else can we do? And so I was always looking for something. And so in about 2000, uh, the embryonic stem cells started to come uh, around and, and I got a hold of some at the Pasteur Institute in Paris and started uh, using them and had some really remarkable results. Uh, and of course, uh, they turned out to be uh, problematic uh, in the long run because of the cancer issues and all that. But at that time, you know, we, were, we didn't know much. We just had them. And, and so we were trying. And so I started doing that down in Mexico. And uh, so then uh, uh, maybe a year after that, I got a hold of some embryo, uh, umbilical cord stem cells and started to, to use those. And, and so uh, uh, for the first five years or so, I was doing it mostly all in Mexico because of the authorities here were, you know, if they knew that I was trying to do something like that, they would, you know, try to take my license away and put me in jail and all that. So I said, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and help people. So that's what I did. And, and, um, and so then um, we just, I started doing, my first clinical trial was in Mexico with um, cerebral palsy uh, because uh, I wanted to have a, a clean, uh, case, uh, a, a patient that had no other diseases, no other problems, just had some one problem that we knew that stem cells would work. And, uh, and from animal work, we knew that uh, stem cells worked on white matter damage and cerebral palsy is a white matter damage disease. And so that's the wiring, you know, from, mm -hmm. from the brain, you have the gray uh, neurons up there, the gray matter. And then from the gray matter, you have white matter. The white matter are like the uh, electrical wires uh, that we have uh, and those electrical wires are white in the brain and they're damaged the wiring and is damaged in cerebral palsy so the stem cells would go there and fix the wiring and so we did that and sure enough it worked like a champ so we had some really great results with cerebral palsy and we still have great results with cerebral palsy unfortunately uh, nobody uh, with money uh, has been uh, able to get a grant and, and actually and do a big clinical research project so that we can prove that it works for, so that insurance pays for it, but it surely should be paying for it because if you're talking about children who are, when if you can get them, get to them within the first couple of years, they can become normal kids pretty much. Whereas what happens is if they don't, and they wind up, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, 60 years later, still having their problems. And so, you know, they, we've lost a whole millions of people who have lost their potential of becoming normal people because of money and lack of interest, I guess. You know, I tried to talk to the Cerebral Palsy Association into to helping do the study, and they told me that I was nuts and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I said, okay, if the Cerebral Palsy Association doesn't want to, <laughs> to solve the problem because they're, they're getting money to pay their own way because uh, they, have, they have their bills and they want to keep their jobs, and if we can eliminate them because we got treatments that work better than anything that they're offering, uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And like in the Alzheimer's associations, same kind of deal. So we have a lot of that kind of, of people, the people that are in charge of these organizations don't want, really want progress because they are, they got their own thing going and they like what they're doing. They have their job. And they don't want to mess it up. Why would you want to mess up your job? You make to 100, $150,000, $200,000. You go to work every day and you're happy and nobody's bitching at you too much. You're not solving anybody's problems too much, but but here comes somebody who says, well, I got the answer. We can eliminate all of this stuff you're doing and, and we can get rid of your job. <laughs> That's well, not gonna fly. It's funny because, I mean, that was always the thing like your crazy uncle would say, right? Like, oh, yeah. there's, there's ways that we can solve these problems, but they don't wanna be able to solve them. But as I've gotten older, and maybe it's just even more recently because of so many things that are happening medically in this world, but we've politicized the medical system in a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's a shame because uh, to your point, there's, there's ways to really significantly help people, but I'd have to imagine there's a lot of active pushback, whether it be from big pharma, because the, the gains and just the way capitalism is built these machines that, you know, shareholder value has to continue to grow quarter after quarter. And if you're not growing, then you're going to lose your job as a CEO. You're going to lose your big, you know, pay packages. And I, yeah. I hear this happening now, not to go into, into a crazy realm, but I, it's funny because I saw a study uh, or 
maybe it wasn't a study, but uh, Tony Robbins of all people was talking about um, sure. stem cell therapy and its potential effect on treating COVID-19 patients. And I'm just like, man, this is a dangerous road because you know, you're not even allowed to talk about the potential treatments for people in my estimation, because there's massive gains that are already set up in play for vaccinations and whether or not they work, there's definitely other ways that I believe people have been able to treat. And it's, it's scary because whether it's COVID or whether it's cancer, or whether it's cerebral palsy, um, money has gotten in the way in, of people's best interest and best health, it seems. Yeah, well, I don't think stem cells are good for treating COVID itself. Uh, well, maybe I had to take it back. There is some evidence that it does work in that acute stage where you're really inflamed and whatnot. That does help. Uh, and then in the, in, the, in the long haulers, it also helps. I had a patient recently, uh, like a 26, 27-year-old lady who had COVID about uh, three, four, three or four months ago. And uh, she was having all these aches and pains and fatigue, et cetera. And uh, I look at her blood and I can, I, I've come up with a way of evaluating people with COVID as to the pathology. It turns out to be uh, the, the antigen antibody kind of reaction to the, to the spike protein, but the spike protein is on the endothelial cell and on the platelets and the platelets become super aggregated and you get white thrombi. That's what these little clots you're talking about all these blood clots and, and, and their platelets are low and all that. And you can actually see these white clots in their blood when they come into the office. And so you can identify that they, you, yes, you do have COVID and you do have this problem. Anyway, so she came in, she was having all kinds of problems. And, and so, and she, 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 her dad know, knows me and, and wanted her to get a, a shot of, of stem cells. So I gave her a shot of stem cells and she reported a week or two later that she was doing better, but then uh, about a month later, she up and has starts to have a chest pain and drops dead. And it was, but they saved her life. She says they resuscitated her and whatnot. Turns out she had myocarditis from the COVID. And so that one vial of stem cells was not enough to stop that. So I gave her a couple more vials and now we're monitoring her to see how she's doing uh, and see if we can get that stopped because man, that is it. You know, for a 26, 27-year-old healthy lady to drop dead of having had COVID in a long honor, man, that is serious stuff. So uh, anything we can do to stop that, uh, we need to, you know, concentrate on, on it. So right now, uh, it looks good, but still, stem cells are expensive and nobody wants to spend any money for it. So uh, and insurance won't pay for it. So but if it's your life is on the line, uh, big borrower steal, you better get some stem cells in you to protect yourself. So am, I'm going to really make this like dumb it down, but am I correct in thinking that stem cells are a way to stimulate and optimize some of the systems that are already maybe given to us at birth? Because I, I'm trying to understand how this one thing can, can do so many things, cre you know, help rejuvenate the pathways inside of the white matter of the brain, uh, you know, possibly regrow meniscus in a knee, you know, is it that it's just triggering these mechanisms to create what they already should be designed to create? Or is it something else? Uh, no, I think it's uh, the genes are there. And so these are the stem cells basically produce growth factors. And so, um, so it's, uh, you know, we don't know everything about all of it, so we're still learning. But uh, in essence, uh, uh, like for example, they did a study with stroke. Uh, they took rats and gave the rats strokes. And uh, some of them, they, they gave stem cells into the leg with a thing called green fluorescent protein, which tells you that uh, this, these are stem cells because they glow in, with a green light, they glow green. And so you could tell where they are. So uh, they, they did that, and the ones uh, that had the stroke and had the stem cells in their legs, they got better. But when they did the autopsies on the brains, there was no stem cells in their brain. Stem cells were still in the leg. So the growth factors went from the leg through the blood to the brain to help correct the brain stroke, okay? So you see, it's the growth factors that contribute to this. So, so you, can, you can do growth factors every day and simulate, to, you know, if you had all the growth factors, that stem cells 
make and put it into a vial and give that every day, it'd be just as good or better than having stem cells. Because the stem cells do it because they're growing in your body, producing it all the time. But if you had, you know, if you have lots of money to make all these growth factors and, and didn't mind giving yourself shots every day, you'd get as good or better results with just the shots of growth factors as you would with the stem cells. So, but, but it's a lot cheaper to give stem cells than to grow and isolate these growth factors and, and give it to you, uh, but I'd, anyway. I'd have to imagine then that the claims that I've heard around longevity would probably be true because I've, I've just heard that stem cell therapy is also something from a longevity standpoint for oh, yeah, like course. anti-aging and, you right. know. Right, the best, the best, you know, I, I've done a lot of it and I, I even got a program called Youngering. I invented the term Youngering uh, because, you know, because we have anti-aging. Who cares about anti-aging? I want to get younger. I don't want to get older. I want to get younger. What the hell? So let's call it Youngering. So I have this program that I've been working on is younger. And I'll tell you, I've done all kinds of stem cells, uh, you name it. Uh, I've done animal stem cells, uh, sheep stem cells, cow stem cells, pig stem cells, uh, all kinds of everything. You know, I started, I started doing uh, uh, stem cells in 1982 with, uh, for Down syndrome kids. Uh, so uh, I've been doing it for quite a while. So stem cells are, are, are truly amazing, but um, uh, they, have, they have certain properties. That I look at them as like uh, seeds that you use in your garden or on the farm. Uh, the, they come in, you know, you buy them by the sack and you put them in your, in your, uh, in your um, seed machine and you go out and spread your seeds out in the field and if your farm land is prepared correctly and you get the proper uh, proper water proper fertilizer and knock out all the weeds and you do everything right uh, within a few months you have all kinds of crops and you got all kinds of things to, to grow you've grown and you can sell and, and uh, survive and all that well stem cells are like that if you don't have good soil uh, and you have like infections in your body, if you have heavy metals in your body, uh, if you have uh, hormonal imbalances in your body, if you're stressed all the time, if you don't get enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. If you're, if you're bouncing down the freeway, bang, 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 that's that, all that kind of thing, that jerking around destroys new blood vessels because uh, regeneration requires new blood vessel growth and new blood vessel growth takes a minimum of three weeks. And so, for example, if you have a stroke and you give them stem cells and they have uh, like the right arm is paralyzed uh, for three weeks, you don't see anything. You do the you do the physical therapy and whatever. But at three weeks, 21 days, 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there, they say, hey, I got up this morning and look, I can move my arm. I can move it up four inches. Then the next day, hey, I can't move it. What's that? So one day it works, the next day not, the next day yes, the next day not. By the third, fourth day, it's working constantly. And then you're on your way because it's blood supply comes and goes. It's, you know, so, so it's the small blood vessels and those small blood vessels are very, very fragile. And so you have very fragile tissue that you're trying to regrow. So that's what people have to understand. This is not like some magic magic. This is actually the way the body works. Whenever you have hypoxia, lack of oxygen, it stimulates growth factors to be made in the surrounding tissue. Those are called hypoxia-inducible factors. And there's about 760 of these different genes that turn on when you have hypoxia. And when, so when you have hypoxia, you have all these genes that say, growth, we need growth. We need lots of oxygen to this. We need new blood vessels. Well, genes are required for the endothelial cells, uh, for the pericytes, for the muscle cells. That, that. There's all these genes that are needed for all of this tissue. It's not, you can't have one gene make a whole capillary and one gene makes a part of a capillary. So you have a whole slew of these genes have to be turned on to make all this stuff. So, so that's kind of the essence of how stem cells work. You have to have the right material, the right factors. Your body has to be correct. Everything has to be done correctly. You can't have lead in your system, mercury in your system, cadmium in your system. I was just reading a paper on uh, advanced macular, uh, age-related macular degeneration. And guess what? Lead, mercury, and cadmium are cause of it. 
And so how many ophthalmologists ever, ever look at your lead, mercury, or cadmium levels? None, ever. And so it's just a wonder you don't get better. And so that's a whole nother thing. How does uh, that like, get missed? Like, I, I, I hear that and it just blows my mind that you're not an ophthalmologist and yet it's very clear and it's just like, how does that whole field of study not do that? <laughs> well, number one, you got a medical board that says anything you do outside of the norm leads you to lose your license. Okay. So you have, you have a lot of pressure on you to not do anything other than what everybody else is doing. Why do you think cancer doctors only follow cancer rules? They, they say, well, what does this organization say I should give you with, with this? You have a renal cell cancer? Well, we got these three protocols we can follow. Uh, this one's this one, this one's this one. I would suggest we try this one because this, da, da, da. so that's what. Well, how about vitamin C, IV? Are you kidding? That's craziness. That's cuckoo. I'll take my license away for that. Well, but I want it. No, you can't have it. You have to have chemo. Otherwise, get out of here. So, you know, they're stuck with doing what they have to because the authorities, the other doctors say you have to. I mean, I have got, if you look at me up on, on the internet, you'll find that I am one of the worst of the worst. I have had more arrows stuck in my back and I have been called I'm a quack, a fraud, uh, that, 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 you name it, I have been called it. And I just go, well, I know what's true. I know what works. I know what I'm doing. But then you just have to let that crap roll off. But the world out there doesn't recognize that, that I know what I'm talking about. They recognize what the medical board says. He's a quack. And so I don't have much business because I'm always being told I'm a quack because I know more about things than they do. And they don't want to hear about it. You bring them, when, when, when you're accused of something in, from the medical board, they send you a letter you're, you know, you've been accused of doing this or that, whatever. And you write back and say, well, I, you know, I was giving vitamin C for a flu. Okay, then that's now quackery. Uh, so if I give them, I give them a, a stack of scientific articles that say that vitamin C is actually somewhat helpful for the flu, they won't even look at it. They will not read it or look at it, nor will the judge. They'll just say, we don't believe it. And that's the end of it. So they don't care about the truth. What they care about is their jobs and their job is to discipline you because you're not following the party line. And that goes right down the line for everything, anything and everything. If everybody else is doing it, you're okay. But if everybody else isn't doing it and you're doing it, you're a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you're seeing right now with ivermectin, yeah. you know, cheap it, at a minimum, it's not hurting anybody. And it's something that's been given in millions and millions of doses to humans. They know that it's an antiparasitic. They know that it has antiviral properties. I'm not saying that it's a better alternative to anything, but if we're truly in a pandemic and we're caring and we know that it's, it's got an efficacy for humans and it's cheap, why are we not having clinics on every corner giving this to people? There's studies that show it could potentially be a prophylactic. Maybe it's not, but again, it's not hurting anybody. We should have a dose for everyone to, you know, if you feel like you're getting sick, you should take this. And, and by the way, you should get outside in the sun. You should take some vitamin D. You should lose some fucking weight. Pardon my French, but I just, you know, maybe it's the, this whole year and a half of frustration because I feel like uh, I'm paying for the sins of the people who I've been bitching about for the last 10 years that, you know, why aren't we outside getting exercise? Why are we living these sedentary lifestyles? And I'm told that, you know, you're a fat shamer, you're, you're hard on people. And I, I would argue back then that this has a direct impact on me, my insurance costs, the way that our healthcare systems are set up. It's a big impact on that. The factor that 60 or 70% of our population is obese and unhealthy. We had, we, we had a chance, you know, we had a chance when this pandemic started to get that message across. But have you seen any, not one advertisement on TV that talks about lifestyle and health and obesity, hypertension, not, not anything. We had a golden chance to convert our whole country into the, a really healthy country. We could have been like Sweden, everybody exercising every day out in the sun every day, enjoying our lives, doing things, being active. But no, not one word, not one word, never. It's like, why? I don't know, whoever these politicians are that, you know, I don't know. 
I just get frustrated and you have to find it, just zip it because you get so frustrated yourself. You want you know, it, it, it's frustrating because no matter what we say, nobody's going to listen. That's oh, all. I think there's people, I mean, here's the funny thing. It's, it's been politicized, but at the end of the day, I think if you really look at whose, whose pockets would be disrupted, there's people on both sides of the, of the aisle who, who are, you know, driving the decision to, you know, have the, the, the protocols and the directions that we're going right now. And I think it's just important for people to question things, to back to kind of, you know, come full circle yeah. where you started. You have to be curious. You have to ask why. And if you're met with resistance when you ask why, especially about your health, you need to be very cautious and concerned as to why people can't give you at least an answer to a pretty valid question, you know? Uh, I know I've got my health problems. I've, I've gone to many doctors and I have been very, very disappointed in the quality of, of care that's given today in this country. Um, and it's just really sad, but you know, hey, the rest of the country, other, the other professions are just as bad, probably too. So, <laughs> yeah, you can look anywhere. It's, it yeah, seems to be so, the case. Yeah. So, anyway, so what else should we talk about? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, um, I, you know, what else you got going on? I mean, is uh, oh, well, I can talk I mean, about is, where's great, where's this? I guess where's this going? You know, because I know. Oh. You know what we're where well where I'm going is I'm going to produce I'm trying to solve all the neurodegenerative diseases right now and I'm close I think I'm putting together formulas and whatnot I can tell you a little bit about it uh, how much time we got however much time you need yeah okay. we got right. I've got right. enough time to all right on. so the, the, it turns out that there's a part of the body that you've never heard of nor is virtually anybody else. Uh, and it's called a neurovascular unit. The neurovascular unit. And the neurovascular unit is composed of a, the capillary endothelial cell. So if this is a capillary, inner lining is the endothelial cell. Around that is a pericyte, which is a kind of stem cell. And around that close is a nerve cell called an astroglial cell. So those are three cells. And then you have on the outside of that is a mast cell, M-A-S-T, which is a one for allergies. All of those cells are phagocytic, which means that they pick up toxins from the blood and from the limb. And so that unit is in every part of your body and controls the blood flow to every part of your body. That capillary, has, every capillary has a nerve to it. Can you believe? And everyone has around it a stem cell. So if there's some damage, the stem cell can repair. So you see, it's all very intricate, but all comes down to that one basic unit. And so I, I, I became interested in it and, and learned about it about three or four years ago. I was at, uh, I went to a meeting uh, called the um, uh, Extracellular Matrix Biology Association or something like that. And uh, it was up in uh, uh, Las Vegas at the Red Rock. And uh, at this meeting, uh, one PhD from Stanford was up there and he was talking about Alzheimer's. And he was saying that this pericyte that, that is a stem cell in this neurovascular unit was the first sign of Alzheimer's when that started to become rigid. And so when you could measure the rigidity of that cell and if as it became more rigid, it, that, that was the first sign that you were going to get Alzheimer's. And so I, and I said, well, and he said, I don't know why. I said, I raised my hand because I'm young and stupid. <laughs> and I said, how about calcium? <laughs> how about calcium? You get injuries because toxins are injury and these are phagocytic cells. So you have a, have a poison, you know, from the gut or whatever, and these little nanoparticles, nanotoxins, I call them, get into the blood and go to these cells and they pick them up and they put holes in them. When you put holes in them, calcium from the outside of those cells rushes in and causes the cells to constrict and that shuts down the blood supply. So now you get hypoxia and see, and hypoxia causes amyloid. See, so that how it all fits, see. And so I became interested in this neurovascular unit. And so uh, the more you look at it, it's involved with stroke repair, rehabilitation. It's involved with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and ALS. 
with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I, I've been working on that a lot. And, uh, and, and they have uh, outright signs of it. Now, the COVID also affects this. And so that's where the, the COVID particles, these viral particles, are phagocytized or eaten by these cells. And that causes then the constriction of the blood vessel. So you'll see areas that turn like gangrenous. Have you ever seen any patient with, with COVID long hauler where the, they get a big hole in their leg or something? Not because, a COVID patient, but I've yeah. seen that type of you know stuff well, from other well, things. I have. You see, there's just like, for some reason, it's like one piece of rot starts in your leg. Here it is. It's like it goes from, from a little red to start itchy a little bit. And pretty soon it turns into this hole and it's like turns and just rots away. And because it's the, those white blood clots have caused the lack of blood flow and it's just the tissue dies. And so um, these particles, uh, COVID particles get into these neurovascular units and, and damage them and that causes dysregulation. And that's what causes a lot of these, these symptoms that they have with the shortness of breath and all these other myocarditis. These are all part of this neurovascular unit picking up these nanotoxins and, and the COVID, these uh, viral particles, I think. Uh, so, uh, so it all starts to be related to start, you start knowing about all these, how they all work together. And so the histamine can be involved too. So, so you have histamine and that can give you like an allergy, opens up things, it goes on and on. Anyway, with, um, <clears throat> with like heavy metals, they interfere with these cells, like it destroys the parasites. So the parasite can't repair and, or it damages calcium, you know, is, is also called the final common pathway for cell death. So every cell dies by way of calcium accumulation within it. Did you know that? I did. And so, yeah, it was, it was first published many, many years ago. Uh, I had, I don't know, about three or four months ago, I put something out on Facebook about it. I said, did you know that calcium is the final common pathway for cell death? And I got attacked by so many PhDs. I'm, I'm an absolute idiot. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I am stupid. There is no such thing. Right? I said, where have you guys been? So I said, okay. So I pulled up, I said, and here's, so I pulled up the original article and slammed it at, here, here's the first comp, first article, here's the second article. You know how many articles there are on calcium and cell death? 23,500. <laughs> and these guys are accusing me of, and these are PhDs, supposed to be smart. They're accusing me that I don't know what I'm talking about and they know everything and there is no such thing and calcium doesn't cause cell death. And I say, okay, if we have PhDs that are that stupid, who will not even look up anything on Google, will not search anything and then be willing to shoot their mouth off and make themselves look like fools, God help us because those are PhDs. They're supposed to be smart. They're not supposed to be farm boys <laughs> like me. I'm just an old Iowa farm boy. So. That might be the foundation of, of what's kind of driven you in the way that you have, though, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I think I think that's always, you know, you always try to be better. As a boy, as a boy, I always, and they, they never let me in the Boy Scout, piss me off always. <laughs> because I was on the farm. They said, no, you're a farmer. You have to be a 4-H for help, whatever, hands, help, whatever the 4-H was. <laughs> but I want to be in Boy Scout. No, you can't always irritated me, still irritates me to this day. <laughs> so anyway, the point was that you say, well, I, if I can't be a Boy Scout, I'll at least be a better in 4-H. One of the things that we had in 4-H was to make the best better. And I took that motto, and that's been one of my, my long-term mottos that is indelibly imprinted on my brain, to make the best better. So if you're, you're the best you are, let's see if we make you better. And if you have you know, whatever, whatever the best treatment is, let's see if we can make it better. So I'm always trying to make anything and everything better. So do you have your own lab then where you're doing this oh, research? Yeah, yeah. And... yeah, I have my own lab. I'm the only guy in the country that has his own lab, research lab, stem cell lab. So I've got the flow cytometers and the hoods and the clean rooms and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I've been doing it for, I got my first clean room in 2006, I think. And so I've, I got a big operation. Lots of stuff. I've treated thousands and thousands of patients uh, with stem cells. Now, now talking about aging, we were talking about aging and anti-aging younger. Uh, so 
Myelin stem cells, stem cells are good. Now, I, I always tell people about growth factors because there are certain animals, certain plants that never grow old. And the reason they never grow old is because they have growth factors as if they were young. So they have the same quantity of growth factors that they had when they were young, they just keep them. And as long as you have growth factors at a high level, you're, you keep staying alive and keep healthy. And so uh, as part of that, to prove that, I did a study, uh, I took umbilical cord blood and I sent it to the lab, a special lab, and we measured 32 different growth factors. And on the average, we had 10,000 uh, uh, deca, I always forget the, the maybe, let's see, it was 10,000 nanograms per deciliter, it was. So 10,000 nanograms per deciliter of each one of those growth factors on the average. So there's a lot, 10,000. I then took blood from a 90 year old lady and the average was not 10,000, but 100. In other words, none. <laughs> she has really absolutely no growth factors. And you know, think about it. at when you're born, you have 10,000 nanograms. As when you're 90, you have 100. At my, my grandson, when he was born, he weighed eight pounds. And in one month, he weighed 16 pounds. He doubled his weight. Now that's stem cells. So, You're talking about one fourth of his body of stem cells at that point. Just grow, grow, grow. And growth factors, growth factors in stem cells. Grow, baby, grow. An old lady with no growth factors and no stem cells, the stem cells are shot. What can she do but die? You know. So if you can get that old lady full of growth factors and stem cells, you see quite, quite a re resurrection, if you will. So I've heard that, like, um, I know there's a lot of clinics in Panama and Mexico. What, what's the, is it the, is it the money thing still, or is it regulation in the United States that keeps them from being able to do what they're doing specifically south of the border up here? Um, well, every one of those clinics is different. Uh, and I, I haven't been following and running around the country and running down there to see what they're doing exactly. Um, when I was there back in, I was in Mexico from 2006 through 2010 or so, and uh, nobody was doing anything. Nobody knew anything about anything. And so, except for me, and they didn't want to hear what I had to say. And, and, and they were so dishonest down there, I couldn't work with them. You know, it was, it was not good. You know, the Mexicans up here, I love them because they're all, I'm not, I, I, maybe I've seen one maybe who is dishonest, but all the other Mexicans I ever worked with are all honest and hardworking people. But down there, not so. <laughs> the whole, no. the whole company, the whole country is corrupt. You know, I, I talked to a, an accountant, uh, a really good accountant. I said, I want to do everything by the book. I want to do, I want to pay my taxes. I want to do everything according to Mexican law, et cetera. He says, looks at me and says, Forget it. <laughs> and this, <laughs> you don't want to do that. You just pay cash. Don't pay anything with checks. Don't try to get anything done legally. Just pay check. Take your pay, take your cash out of your wallet and pay it. And forget about it. Don't have anything to do with the legal system here because it's all corrupt. That's a that's a that's a was a board certified accountant and all this. You know, it was well established fellow. He says, forget it. That's they're all crooks. And he was right, let me tell you, you can't deal. So, so I have a hard time knowing what these guys are doing in sure. Mexico about anything. So here, now Panama, I know Reardon, that's that yeah. Neil Reardon. Yeah. Uh, and Neil and I got together many years ago. We started working together back in 2003 or so. Uh, and, but he, he got chased out of, yeah, that was an interesting story if you wanna hear a story. Uh, sure. so, so we, uh, uh, he and I were talking and, and we, because we both were using stem cells and, uh, and uh, he, had, he had moved to uh, um, uh, the Bahamas. Uh, and um, uh, so um, uh, he uh, said, well, as soon as I get permission uh, to do the stem cells, you can bring your patients down here. I said, great, let me know. So after a month or two, he gives me a call and says, okay, I'm ready, I got permission. We're legal, we're good to go. So bring your patients. So I brought my patients down, I brought like 12 patients down for stem cells. And we were there for five days or so. And, and uh, 
after it was said and done, I get home. And the next thing I know, uh, his client says, did you see the, the Nassau paper? I said, no. He said, well, you should. And he said, he or somebody sent me. And some newspaper reporter had gotten a hold of one of my patients that didn't pay, didn't pay me, stiffed me for $12,000 and uh, because it was his job to collect money and he didn't do it. So he didn't do his job. And the next thing I know, this person who didn't pay is complaining about the fact that the, the kid did not get better because it was a genetic, you know, gene, gene therapy, uh, uh, a genetic problem is very hard to treat uh, with stem cells that doesn't work very well. But this child's parents wanted to try it. And I said, fine, but they, they managed to get their treatment in, steal my money, and then got home and then complained to the NASA uh, reporter that we, we were doing where we were getting women pregnant and then aborting them and using aborted fetal tissues on children and their children child had gotten. And so when that got the head, that was in the headlines of the NASA paper. And, and when that hit the, the NASA news, uh, the health department went nuts and they closed Reardon down like that. Wow. And he had to leave the country and he went from there to uh, Costa Rica. <laughs> so he had spent two years in Costa Rica. And then uh, I guess he had some problems there with the government too. And then so he then moved to Panama. He's been in Panama now for, I don't know, 10 years or so. And he's been doing quite well there. Uh, Neil's a good guy, but, you know, it's, this is the kind of stuff you have to go through because, you know, politics, you know. So mm -hmm. anyway, here it's a different story. We got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, junk science. Uh, and so we have, uh, you have no idea what you're dealing with, with stem cells. You know, when you when you go to your chiropractor or your naturopath or whatever, they, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, they, don't know what, they don't even have a microscope to look at the slides. They don't know what they're looking at if they did. Uh, and, uh, and we did some, we did a lot of studies on all these. And, and I don't know, we did uh, maybe 10 different companies products and there'd be, they'd say 30 million cells. And instead of 30 million cells, there'd be 3 million uh, or none, no cells, that kind of thing. Unless this outright fraud. And besides that, they were, they were, they were, they, what they were doing and they probably still are, they would take the umbilical cord and grind, they would grind up the cord and, and take the ground up the cord itself, which is not, which is foreign tissue. This is the baby. It's not your tissue. It's not, it's from the mother and from the baby. And, and these have got HLA antigens. So if you stick that into you, you have a reaction to these HLA antigens and now you can get really sick. And so a lot of people have gotten a lot really sick from these cells because they don't separate out the stem cells. So to do it right, you have to have a, what's called FICO centrifugation. You take the blood and spin it down and take out the stem cells and separate them, put them in a culture, isolate them. And so you get pure stem cells. When you have pure stem cells, you don't have problems. You don't, you know, I've done over 200,000 vials. I have had no allergic reactions. Every other doctor in this country has to give, give uh, hit, um, Benadryl and cortisone as a shot when they give the stem cells because they know that they're going to like to kill the patient unless they give them an anti-allergy medicine every time they do it. So uh, that's, you know, so if you want to take your chances, go to your local chiropractor and get stem cells. The, F the FDA is trying their best to shut them all down, but uh, who knows if they'll ever do it because they got their own problems with the COVID and all this other stuff. Me, on the other hand, now I've got, I'm exempt. So I'm mine, which is hard to understand. Uh, because the doctors don't understand it, and but this is a legal thing, and the fact is that that um, many 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 years ago, when doctors were doctors and they didn't have much, you could make up chicken soup in your kitchen in your office and give the patient chicken soup, and that was considered a drug because I made it for you. So they had herbs. We used a lot of herbs in those days, a hundred years ago, and we would take whatever and make make it into something and come up with some concoction and that was then used as a drug for you and as long as you knew what I gave you and that you were okay with it you signed off on it I understand I'm taking such and such and, and I know what it is and you know all about it and it's being for use for this you were okay I'm okay it's legal so that 
is a grandfathered kind of pharmaceutical exemption for the doctor in his office. He can make whatever he wants to in his office to give to his patients. I make stem cells to give to my patients. That makes me exempt from the FDA. The FDA has no jurisdiction over my practice whatsoever. So when they come to the door, I say, hi, you know what you can do? <laughs> and I have done that. And so, and, and so I have gone through that process. And so uh, I know what's legal, what's not, but the other doctors don't because they you know, don't have the balls to do what I do, you know, because it, it takes balls. You know, you got to have courage. You have to know what's right. And you're you risking to... a lot of your own money, I'm sure, you yeah, know, to invest sure, in all the things that you need to have it be successful with the fear that somebody's going to come and shut you down. So, yeah, yeah. Well, they won't even spend $500 for a microscope. <laughs> so, hey, I, I, I'm sorry, I got to go. No rush. No worries at all, man. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, it's been uh, fun. I appreciate talking to you. Most definitely. Anytime. We'll do it again. Okay. Thanks, doctor. Thank you. Bye bye.